Welcome to the Haskell Cast. I'm Chris Forno, and my co-host is Alp Mistanaguri. Hello. Our guest today is Richard Eisenberg. Richard has published a number of papers on Haskell's type system, including his dissertation, Dependent Types in Haskell. Alongside the papers, he has been extending GHC's type system. He currently teaches computer science at Bryn Mawr College. Welcome, Richard. Thanks for having me. Yes, uh, so you're a programming language uh, researcher and uh, specialized in type systems and in trying to make type systems uh, prevent us from uh, from doing some mistakes or preventing some unsafe uh, uh, situations. Uh, but could you elaborate with concrete uh, business examples of of the uh, benefits of strong type systems and why they don't get in the way. And I mean, you, you know uh, how it goes. So could you maybe uh, just frame uh, your uh, domain uh, a little? Sure, sure. Um, so so I'm going to take it uh, a step further. And, and instead of just to talk about strong type systems, I'll, I'll go all the way to dependent type systems. Um, and, and my... The, sort of the easiest description I, I have for it is to think about a, a, a sorting algorithm. And so um, the, the – actually, let me take a, a, a step back. Um, the, the whole goal of, of typing systems is to get errors earlier. Um, so we in, – instead of when you have a running program, all of a sudden it errors, uh, perhaps – you know, live as a, as a client is interacting with your program, say, um, we want to be able to detect a, a mistake at compile time so that way the programmer can, can fix it right away. Um, and, and static type systems do, um, do all of that. Dependent type systems do more of that. And, and so my example, as I was saying before, um, my example is a, uh, a sorting algorithm. So we might think of a sorting algorithm as taking a list of integers to a list of integers, and that the input is a list of integers, the output is a list of integers. Um, but actually, we can do better than that. Um, instead of that, um, it can be, the input can be a list of integers, and the output can be a list of integers that's in non-decreasing order, and that is a permutation of the input list. And by giving it that type, that fully specifies what the sorting algorithm does. And if you can write that type, then when you implement your sorting algorithm, if you make any mistake, then you get, uh, an ex you get a compile time error. And so that way you can't even build your application or try to ship it or discover this later. So, so it's a way of mathematically verifying all of your code right up front. Um, and so, you know, sorting algorithm, yeah, we know sorting algorithms. They're not so hard to write, but that's a nice small example um, of, of how we might do this. And, and actually that's possible in Haskell today. Could you give us an overview of the of a few different uh, situations in industrial programs that could benefit from uh, dependent typing? Yes. Um, I, I think, though, the so to, to, um, to, to apply dependent types in, in an industrial setting, I mean, I think the way that it's going to be most helpful is really going to depend on the... Um, the developers and, and what the, the goals of the developers are. So in, in any industrial setting, there's going to be some portion of code that is the, the fundamental business logic. Um, and doing, doing work with dependent types is almost always going to be more, um, more burdensome than writing without dependent types. Dependent types are hard to work with. Um, and, and the long-term goal of my research is to ease that burden, although that's not what I'm working on now. Right now, I'm, I'm more working on, on just getting them out there. Um, so so the, that industrial programmer is going to have to decide what do they want to verify. So, so one example might be if you have um, uh, someone working in the financial industry working with different currencies. Um, so you could use dependent types to help ensure that you never treat your pile of euros as a pile of dollars um, because that's going to break everything. And, and so that could be one extra check that you make. And that's a, that's a fairly small check. Um, you could do um, any, any sort of algorithm that you say we only want to perform some transaction when 
again, thinking about currency conversion. Maybe you only want to perform some transaction when the euro has a certain ratio to the dollar, but you could actually verify that also using dependent types so that if you try, if you have some code that might perform that transaction when that uh, conversion ratio doesn't hold, you'd, you'd have a compile time error um, that will always check that, that conversion before um, or ch check the, um, uh, the currency uh, rate before uh, performing the operation. So, so that's, that's, that's one example. Another example I have is using database access. Um, you can write a database access program that, and this, this is actually one of the one, one of the big examples of my thesis, um, that statically verifies all database accesses as the program is starting up essentially. Um, and so if you imagine a long running program on a web server, then there can't be any surprise runtime crash later on. Um, actually, the, the way that that particular example works is it, instead of verifying compile time, it verifies as the program starts up. It does a whole bunch of checks right at the beginning. But then we know once all those checks are performed at the beginning, thereafter everything is going to be fine. So that, that makes sense in sort of this long-running server program. Um, those, are, those, are, those are two examples. I think that the broader answer to, to the question is dependent types give you as much power as, as you want to invest, essentially. And um, so an industrial programmer can choose any part of, of their application and say, ah, I really want to verify this one part, make sure there's no errors here. This is a core part of business logic for me. Um, and then invest the time and energy into verifying that one portion. Um, and one of the beauties of doing dependent types in Haskell particularly is that you can have the rest of your application written in more or less standard Haskell, and then just have one part do all this dependent type stuff. Um, and, and there's actually a seamless interface uh, between these two, two portions of your application. So can you maybe describe a bit uh, the, the, the features in Haskell that we have and the extensions, of course, uh, that allow us to have something close to dependent types or maybe actual proper dependent types these days? I'm not sure. Uh, what's the current status? So the, the current state is that I, I conjecture, um, although I have not proved it, that any dependently typed program you could write in one of those full dependently typed languages, something like Cock or Agder, Idris, F-Star, you can also write in Haskell today um, using singletons. Um, so uh, singletons is essentially a technique for encoding dependent types in a non-dependently typed language. And with GHC 8, uh, Haskell, or GHC really, is now strong enough to be able to encode all of these different um, uh, idioms that you might do in a dependently typed language. The singleton's encoding is painful. Um, so uh, I, I've written a library called singleton's that allows, that takes some of the pain away, but, but really only some of the pain. It's still quite painful. Um, and um, it has runtime consequences. Your program will run slower if you, if you do all this. So this isn't really ready for production work. It's definitely ready for experiments. Um, and there are, are, are users out there who do this around the outsides of their applications or, or for, for experiments. Um, uh, but but every, in some sense, in that way, we have dependent types today. And can you maybe uh, run us through uh, the constructs that are required to qualify Haskell as a dependently typed programming language. So what, what should we be able to do and how is it possible uh, given the, the extensions we have today? So, so it needs quite a few of the extensions. So um, probably the key extension is, is generalized algebraic data types um, or GADATs. Uh, and the reason I call that the key extension is that allows a pattern match to uh, essentially give you more information about the types of, of values. And so in a GADT pattern match, each branch of your case match or each equation of your function has different typing rules, essentially, for the right-hand sides. Um, and that's really the hallmark of dependent typing, is that in some parts of your program, you have different typing rules than in other parts. Um, and so that's, that's really where this all started. Um, to do proper dependent types today, or, or, or I shouldn't say proper, I should do dependent types with singletons and to be able to do this conversion from, from a dependently typed language, you also need a whole lot more features. 
Um, you need type families, um, which allow you to write functions in types. Um, you need the recent uh, type in type extension. That's that was my big contribution for GHC eight. Um, and uh, what that essentially allows you to do is not only to have functions on types, but you can have functions on kinds, and you can have GADTs give you information about kinds. And, and uh, the reason you can do that is that types and kinds are no longer considered separate entities in GHC8. They're really the same thing. Um, those, those are the, the big extensions. Um, and then there's, there's a fair number of more extensions that are needed uh, quite frequently, um, although I, I don't think they're, they're fully necessary. Rank and types is a big one. Um, and then uh, to make the syntax work out, we need type operators, um, which just allows you to write operators and types. So in your dissertation, you hint that um, you're working on some other changes or extensions to GAC that will make it more complete um, as a as a, with dependent types. Um, can you talk about what those are and maybe how far away you expect them to be? Sure. So so right now we have dependent types through singletons, but as I said, singletons are, are a real pain to use. Um, and so the the future or my my future plan is to get rid of the singletons and allow us to to program directly with dependent types. And so this would mean for example, that any regular function that you write to Haskell, you can now use that function in a type. Um, and so uh, going back to the sorting example, um, you might write uh, a function to check, you know, is this list in ascending order? Well, the check for a list being in ascending order, that's a key part of the type of a sorting function. Um, today, you would need a type family to do that. In the future, you could just write a normal function that, say, outputs a bool and checks to see, is this list in ascending order? And then use that function in the type um, of your sorting function. Um, and so that's that's the sort of the key part. Then there's a lot of other follow-on things. Um, uh, but the key part is really being able to use regular functions directly in types. Um, as for a timeline, that is a little hard to predict. Uh, so my, my goal, uh, for this coming summer, uh, 2017 is to go back and, and there's still actually a number of lingering bugs, uh, from introducing the type and type extension. So my, my goal is to really shore that up and make everything work nicely. Um, and then my, my hope is next summer in 2018 to, to really start the implementation of dependent types. We'll see how far I get. I'm, I'm actively recruiting helpers. Um, and, and so uh, hopefully that this, this can become more of a, of a team effort. And, you know, in, in, in a goal not to set expectations too high, um, I think uh, sort of in the back of my head, my, my backstop, my, when, when I know I'll, I'll have failed to meet my deadline is if I don't get them in, let's see, by uh, 2020, um, I, I have a full year sabbatical that year and expect to use that sabbatical to finish this up. Uh, would you uh, would you say that dependent types are hard to teach compared to the other paradigms? It's a little hard to say, actually. So this past semester, I taught a course in Haskell, and I taught the dependently typed features of Haskell um, uh, with with an explicit eye to recruiting helpers and, and implementing dependent types. And so I needed them to know about dependent types in Haskell and. and Given the ad hoc way dependent types are can be used in Haskell today, that was really a challenge. Um, I think it would be interesting to try to teach dependent types in, in a language like Idris or Agdo, where they're, they're just much more ergonomic. Um, and and to, it would be interesting to compare those experiences. I have not tried to do that, so it would be a little hard to say. What was interesting in my experience is that with students not knowing the non-dependently typed Haskell and didn't without the experience with Haskell without dependent types would ask really interesting questions that indicated that they didn't see much of a difference between term level functions and type level functions. They, they really wanted just to be, have to have the dependent types. So in some sense, I think 
bringing proper dependent types into Haskell would make the teaching easier. And, and to a student who has no background in typed functional programming, may not notice any difference in learning dependent types versus regular type functional programming. Yeah. So this, uh, I ask because, uh, I mean, it feels like when people learn Haskell, uh, so they will learn the basics of, uh, you know, defining functions and uh, addition of numbers and all that. Uh, and then at some point, they will start thinking about IO and maybe uh, start thinking about applicatives, monads, functors, and all that. But it feels like you only start learning, I mean, really learning about GADTs and using them only a few years in, uh, or maybe uh, at least a, one year in, and uh, let alone the type families and other uh, extensions that, uh, yeah, you get to discover much later. So, so you, you're very much at the heart of all those extensions and uh, and and. Uh, and tricks even, uh, and talking about singletons and uh, the units library as well that you wrote. So wh what could what could be done to uh, make this more approachable and, and, and less scary in a way? No, that's a great question. Um, I think, well, I think the answer is to get rid of all of the extensions and have dependent types properly in Haskell, so we don't need to do all of that. Um, I will say there's no, you, you, you described a certain progression through Haskell and um, there's no need to follow that particular progression. So, so in this course I taught, um, say I went through and taught, taught basic functions and types. I touched on type classes briefly, uh, never really even taught monads. Maybe some could, could criticize this. And then we went straight into GADTs and type families. Uh, and, The, the biggest complaint I got for that wasn't that it was necessarily that hard, but that students wanted more, um, more practical applications of, of the language. And, and all I could do in the amount of time I had is, is continue to promise that, yes, people actually do use Haskell and I could point at them, but we, we couldn't really cover those aspects of it in the amount of time that we had um, because I didn't, I didn't go into monads and monad transformers and IO and, and, and all of that. And, and that was all touched on very briefly. So, Uh, that said, all of the dependent type stuff doesn't depend on doing the more practical aspects of Haskell. So if you had a, a more theoretically-minded student uh, who could just trust that this is useful in the end, you could go straight into all of that, uh, all the dependent types, and, and that worked just fine. Uh, so, so it really has to do with your choice as you're running Haskell. What direction do you take? And there's, there's, not, there's not really a dependency of one of these on the So for those of us who have had years of working with Haskell without really working with any of the more interesting type features, um, if you were to have to teach a class to them, what, what sort of sequence do you think you might choose for kind of introducing things in a way that wouldn't terrify them and have them all quit? So, so to, to, to cover all these advanced type level features for, for an audience who already knew Haskell, um, I think the, the starting place would be, would be GADTs. Uh, and, and so with, with the GADT, um, we could start using, uh, it's a very common example, but there's a reason it's a common example, length index vectors. Um, that a length index vector is, is essentially a, a list, but the length of the list is also included in the type. And it's a, it, the reason it's such a common example is it's very small to, to write down. And you can already do quite a lot with it. And so um, actually one of the tasks I had my class this semester do is to use that and translate the functions from data.list into using these length index vectors uh, in such a way that the length properties of the functions are now verified. Um, so a simple example of that is you would write down the type of reverse. And in the type of reverse, it takes a vector of a certain length n, and it's going to output a vector of that same length n. Um, and so now your implementation has to respect the length of the input vector. If you just return an empty list, which of course you could do over lists, there's nothing to stop you from doing that, now that's no longer going to type check. Um, and so that's a way of using GADTs to verify existing algorithms. Um, and uh, GADTs can also be used to increase expressiveness and um, actually to speed up certain programs that, that 
sometimes you might have a program with, with a redundant check and, and you can use a GAUT to actually remove that redundant check. Um, and, and so you can use these for, for optimization. So that, that'd be where I would start the, that curriculum. I mean, you could spend quite a, time, quite a lot of time just on GAUTs. So your enthusiasm for this really comes through in your writing and your talks. Um, and I, I believe in your dissertation, you're, you're talking about how you see a future where dependent types are used much more widely among Haskell developers. Um, what do you think is that that change is going to be like? Are we almost there and we, we just need to get people sort of familiar with it and educated? Or do you feel like there's some some additional work that needs to be done to get past these small examples. I mean, you mentioned yourself that a new interesting dependently type program is enough to get published right now. They're rare enough. Yes. Yeah. There's, there's, a, there's, I don't think we're that close to it. No. Um, I think it's going to be a, a long transition toward this style of programming. Um, and, uh, but I, I definitely think we've started in that direction. There's an increasing number of libraries that use advanced type-level features. Um, Servant is a, is a great example of that. Um, I have not used Servant my, myself, uh, but looking through it, it uses a whole lot of these type-level features. Um, and, and as I understand it, uh, users of that, of that library really... Um, get, get an advantage from that because so so uh, for listeners who don't know, Servant is uh, an API that allows you to essentially have types a type safe web API, um, and so you encode various aspects of what your web API exports and what's possible through the type system. So you can't make ill formed queries, and so this this does not use dependent types sort of with a capital D and a capital T but is definitely a step in that direction. Um, so there's a database library, Opali, which also uses uh, lots of fancy types that has more toward dependent types, actually, um, that is, is another step in this direction. So we're starting to see a few libraries out there that, that are incorporating these ideas. I think as, uh, as they become easier to work with, these libraries will multiply and then more people will buy in and people will start to see how these can be useful. Yeah, that's an interesting example with, um, with Servant where I don't think prior people really felt like they were missing that. But then once they actually see, oh, you know, there's safety and it actually reduces the amount of code you have to write, um, that's, a, that's a huge benefit. It's very exciting that the, what may come in the future. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's right. I think people can see how these new uh, libraries are, are, are useful. It, 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 I, think, I think you summed it up well. No one missed it before, but, but once they start using it, they realize that, that, that it can be really helpful. Uh, yeah. and another, another part of it, as I said, there's a long transition, is uh, I think we need, even once the language is, has dependent types, there's a very long way to go with tool support. Um, and this is, this is something I look at other dependently typed languages, um, such as Idris and Agda, that have far better tool support um, than, than Haskell does. Uh, and I think the state of the art in Haskell is in Terra, which is, which is quite good. But um, there's, 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 I think, a lot more to be done in, in that area. And so I think even once all of the underlying technology is available, we'll still need that that tool support to just make it feel more useful. Uh, I, I just would like to emphasize that the uh, just even the simple uh, fact of indexing a container by its length uh, allows you to write uh, safe uh, linear algebraic operations, uh, and therefore it helps. I mean, I, I'm speaking of that because I worked on uh, neural network libraries and things like that. And at some point, when you write the training algorithm, uh, you you will get uh, confused about uh, the dimensions of of the matrices, and you might forget to transpose one or something like that. And if you don't have the type uh, indexed uh, matrix or vector type with the, its length, then you can actually do this error and uh, and only know about it at runtime. But if you index statically, like it's done in H matrix in one of the modules, I think, 
it has static indexes, indices for uh, matrices and vectors. If you use that, you can't mix up the dimensions of the matrices, and you're forced to, if it compiles, it, it has to make sense from uh, a dimensional perspective. So I, I just wanted to mention this example as being really simple and isolated, but it's a huge benefit in actual applications, numerical applications. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much for, for bringing that in. One of, uh, I know something that, that I struggle with is, is knowing the actual practical examples. My, I'm, I'm always thinking about the theory and the implementation. And I, don't, I, I don't write business logic, and so, so thank you for, for, for bringing that in. Um, uh, this also might be a good place to say uh, for, for listeners interested in learning more about uh, uh, GADTs and how they might be used, um, there was a, uh, I gave a talk at LambdaConf several years ago um, that, uh, uh, that, that covers introduction to, to GADTs in the service of writing a little Lambda calculus interpreter um, and where both the verification and actually optimization aspects of GADTs come through um, quite nicely. So that might be a sort of a good next step if, if someone wants to, to explore in that direction. Yeah, I believe there were also some exercises you included with that, which is uh, very helpful. So, so I'd like to take a kind of an adversarial stance here with with um, dependent types. Uh, there's something that I've looked at and kind of okay, this is interesting. Give it a try. Well, you know, I have some work to get done. Um, if you, you know, if if Donald Knuth had dependent types available when he was writing tech, for example. Um, do you think he would have ended up writing fewer checks to people, uh, reward checks for finding bugs, or do you think he wouldn't have written any because he never got the thing, you know, written and published? That's a great question, um, and and this, uh, I, I think the real answer to that is well, we're going to have to see. Um, is it worth using dependent types? Maybe I, I, I definitely hold out the possibility we will discover as um, a community of software engineers that no, it's not worth it. That writing tests is easier. Releasing buggy code is less costly than doing all the static verification. Uh, and that might turn out to be the case. I, I, don't, I don't know if I have any more knowledgeable perspective on that than anyone else. Um, my, my gut instinct is that yes, it will work. Dependent types will find their way everywhere. I mean, I, I, my, my long, long-term vision in 40 years, you know, we'll be teaching when we start teaching uh, programming to, uh, to high schoolers or, or younger, we'll be teaching it with dependent types because it will just be the right way to do things. And it's the way that everyone will do things. But, but you know, maybe in 40 or 50 years, something like that. Um, but I could be very wrong. Maybe they're too hard. Maybe, maybe human brains aren't big enough to, to really use them correctly. Well, I, I hope you're right on that because uh, I see a bleak future where um – professional developers are already dealing with going down three layers of abstraction to fix, you know, errors in underlying systems. And when we get even further, you know, it may be possible, impossible at some point. And I hope we keep finding these um, paradigm shifts to uh, keep the profession going, basically. Um, so let's assume that they are uh, possible and they're usable in Haskell. Um the this future you envision of of dependent types sort of being correctly implemented in Haskell rather than as this collection of extensions you have to kind of get together and use packages for. Um, are we at risk of Haskell's type system getting much more complex, uh, difficult to reason about with the errors and so on, um, or is there kind of a clear, clean path forward? So there is a risk. Um, that risk is going to depend on or, or how much we go down that road is going to depend on really the libraries. So backward compatibility, one, one, of the, one of the beauties of working in the context of Haskell is it's a, a real-world language with a sizable user base. I can't go in and design my dependently typed extension that then breaks existing code. And so that makes it harder and it keeps me honest as, as the designer of this feature, and um, uh, which, which is actually it's a really fun challenge to figure out how can we fit this in. So the future 
version of GHC that supports dependent types. All the code that you write today will continue to work. Um, uh, as a part of that, error message degradation is just not acceptable. Error messages are already not great, and we have to improve that. I think we have to actually improve that sooner than the dependent types will end up in there. Um, so the if, if, a, if, if someone wants to come in and program in Haskell and not use any of these features, that should be possible, and that person should have the same or better, hopefully, if we improve error messages, experience than, that, than they have today. Um, what the, the way that dependent types might cause a problem is if suddenly the library writers realize they have all of this extra power, and the library writers, these are expert Hasklers, and then start using dependent types everywhere in their uh, exported functions. And now it forces just uh, the, the average new user, you know, if, if we make Putstrel independently typed somehow, um, that, that would now form a real barrier to someone learning Haskell for the first time, right? And so it's going to, when, you know, with more power comes more responsibility, right? So when, when the language is more powerful, library writers are going to have to apply maybe more taste in figuring out uh, we need to keep at least some portion of our library with a more accessible interface. Um, and then maybe over time, again, if, if dependent types become more and more pervasive and more and more common, then maybe your beginning programmer will be expected to deal with this. But I think that's a really long time. So uh, I have a very specific question. So currently, for example, we have like term level strings, but at the type level, it's something different. It's not like uh, the string that gets lifted as a kind or something like that. It's like this separate thing called called a symbol. Uh, and is that the kind of thing that we, we should be expecting to uh, go away uh, as we uh, as we tend toward this ideal? Uh, Integration of dependent types. Yes, I, I think I think that should go away. I think that the the mismatch when you write a number in, a, in an expression, right? That's this overloaded number in the num class, and yet when you write one in a type, it's only a map. Um, and when you write a, a term level string, it's this list of characters. When you write it in a in a type, you get a symbol. Um, and I think we're going to have to work around that. Um, luckily. Using overloading, we can actually do that in a backward compatible way. And, and if we imagine uh, essentially the num type class working in types, then NAT can just be a member of that type class. And so we can keep current code uh, compiling, but then also allow proper integers in types as well as floating points. Um, and we can have uh, with strings, it's a little bit more awkward because overloaded strings isn't done by default, although many people use that extension. That's a very widely used one. Um, and so that's essentially what we'd have at the type level. So you could have a string that could be a list of characters in a type, um, or it could be one of these symbols. Uh, now, uh, so I would like to discuss uh, another approach. Well, it's, it's related, but uh, it's attacking the problem from a different angle, I think. So I suppose you heard about liquid Haskell. So, so could you maybe explain how it relates and how it differs from uh, attacking the language itself? as opposed to uh, adding uh, something on top like Liquid Haskell does? So, so Liquid Haskell works by having the, the programmer write annotations essentially in comments in their code, and then there's a Liquid Haskell processor which extracts these comments and then uses them to perform uh, certain verification on, on the code written. Uh, and the particular kind of verification that Liquid Haskell does is, is using a technique called refinement types, where... Instead of just having an int, uh, we have an int that is greater than two, for example. Um, and so you can now write functions that that have um, that have types that where either the input is restricted or the output is restricted or both. Um, and I, I see liquid Haskell and dependent types sort of working. They're two different solutions working toward the same goal of increased verification. I would say dependent types also has, has uh, another goal of allowing more expressiveness, more than just uh, verification. Uh, so, for example, it's, it's a little hard to describe this in, in, in full, but in, in, the, um, in this Lambda Calculus interpreter that uses um, some dependently typed features, there's a few checks that we can skip that you would have to include in a more traditionally written um, uh, interpreter. Um, 
So that and that kind of thing is not possible using liquid Haskell. So liquid Haskell, it's it's almost as expressive as dependent types. Dependent types has a little bit more on top. What's really nice about the liquid Haskell work is they've integrated um, liquid Haskell with a an SMT solver. And so that means that the programmer doesn't have to do the work of verification. All the programmer does is specify the invariants that they wish to hold. And this SMT solver working in the background checks all of them. And and so in the vast majority of cases, that just works fantastically. Um, Liquid Haskell also has this very nice unobtrusive syntax. Um, And so it's it's a very easy system to work with. Dependent types, or at least the, the dependent types as, as I'm envisioning, is lacking all of these niceties. Um, and so it's my hope that someday we can merge these two projects. And I see Liquid Haskell as essentially being a front end for dependent types. Because dependent types can do all of these refinement types. It has all that power. But, um, but even with proper dependent types, in some places the syntax is, is clunky. And, and so it's, it's the hope that there's enough power independent types that we could then layer the liquid Haskell syntax and the SMT solvers and all the work that they've done essentially on top of dependent types and then, and then have one verification framework going forward. Well, I would like to uh, talk about something else for a bit because uh, we've talked quite a lot about dependent types already. Um, so there's something that might seem trivial uh, to many people, but actually was not. It's just safe zero-cost coefficients. Could you explain uh, what they, well, what was the problem before and how it got fixed, maybe? Uh, sure. So the, the, the safe zero-cost coercions is essentially a generalization of generalized new type deriving. Um, the idea there is if you have, uh, so Haskell has this new type construct. Uh, which allows you to declare a new type that at runtime is identical to some existing type. So the, the example I'll use is a very simple one. So we, we could have um, a new type named age that's just a wrapper around it. Um, and, and so we have this, this age type and we have this int type, and we know that at runtime both of these are the same. Um, and through using uh, pattern matching or using the new type constructor um, or perhaps a record selector, we can convert back and forth between age and end. And when we compile the program, this new type constructor or record selector, that just gets compiled away. There is no runtime action at all. Uh, the problem, though, is say you have a list of ages and you need a list of ints. Um, and so that now takes, to, to convert the list of ages to a list of int, requires mapping through the list. And, and that's ridiculous, right? We have this list. We know nothing has to happen at runtime. But... Uh, the way that GHC works, we'll still walk down the list and do nothing at each element, but we'll end up building a new list. So this is terrible. Um, and so the idea of, of safe zero-cost coercion is it allows us to take the runtime relationship between age and int and lift that through data types. So now we can say not only are age and int representationally the same. Um, when I say that, I mean represented by the same bits in the running program. Um, but now we can also say that a list of age and a list of int is the same, and as well as a great variety of other structures and really any data type that, that you write, um, you can you can lift these new type relationships through. Um, and so that's that's really the goal of that work is to is to make make those conversions faster. Okay, uh, and what what will you say? I mean, uh, how come it was not possible before? To do it at zero cost, uh, what, what, what's, what was blocking uh, GHC basically in, in the implementation or in, in theory or what was the blocker? So, so the, the blocker is that so for a data type like list or maybe or either these simple data types, this all works out quite nicely. But there are some data types that you don't want to do this for. Um, so uh, an example of that is the down data type. So the, the down data type, um, that changes the ORD instance of, of some other type. So if, if when we say down int, down is just a, a down int is a new type wrapper around int. They're representationally equal. But their ORD instances are, back, are, are, are opposite of each other. And so if, say, we have a set of int, we don't want to then be able to treat that as a set of down int because now all the set lookup operations will fail. 
Um, and so we needed a way of, of differentiating between set and list, where a list event and a list of down end, that's fine, but or converting between these at runtime without taking any action is fine, but we can't do that with a set event versus a set of down end. Um, and so the, uh, the challenge was to define the, um, the roles mechanism that, that exists in GHC now, which can say that on a set, uh, we, we say that the parameter to set has a nominal role, um, which essentially means that the safe coercion mechanism doesn't work there, whereas the role on lists type parameter is representational, saying that uh, the safe coercion mechanism does work on lists. Okay, so you could convert, say if you have a data type that takes two type parameters, the first one nominal, the second one uh, representational. So let's call this data type C, AB, uh, type parameters AB. So you could convert from CAB to CAC uh, uh, as long as uh, B and C are representationally equivalent, like if one is a new type of the other. But you can't switch the A, the first type element. Is that right? That's yeah. That's that's exactly what it means to have the first parameter be nominal and the second one be representation. Um, you you mentioned that uh, I can't remember exactly what you said about total versus type safe. Um, but if you understand what I'm asking about, what the distinction is between them and why. Uh, having totality is is maybe not a prerequisite for um, dependent types or type safety. I, I, I don't remember exactly what it was. Sure. Um, so one fear of that, that I've gotten many times actually about the idea of dependent types in Haskell is that um, uh, in other dependently typed languages, uh, all functions are required to terminate. Um, and so when you write a function in in Agda, say, um, uh, the Agda compiler checks, tries to find some measure that, that, that's reducing uh, at every recursive call, and so that that way it can verify that the function terminates. And we don't want that in Haskell. Um, there's plenty of great non-terminating functions out there. Um, you know, for example, a web server that needs to just keep taking requests. Um, and so, how how why do these other languages have this totality? That's that's the, the how we can describe that as those languages are total and saying that every function, when you give it an input, it will eventually produce an output. Um, and Haskell is a non-total language or, or a partial language. So the um, in independently typed languages, what you can do is you can have a function that computes an equality between types. And so you have this function run for a while, say, and then it'll say, ah, at the end of this, that this um, int type is, is equal to some type variable A. And so now if you have something of type A, then you can use that as something of type A. Um, and in a total language, such a function never needs to get run. Because we know, maybe it would take a very long time to run, but we know when, it, when it's done, it's going to give you this equality. And so we can just assume, since we have that function, we can now assume that A equals int, and then carry on with our uh, computation. Um, in Haskell, because Haskell is not total, we still need to run that function. And so one of the drawbacks of dependent types in Haskell is going to be that when we do have to run one of these proofs, um, it, we actually do have to run it. So that means that potentially a dependently type program, if you have to do one of these proofs, which, which you do fairly frequently in a dependently type program, um, that your program will then be slower. Um, so one, one concrete example of this is, is going back to the reverse example on length index vectors. So it turns out if you write sort of a naive um, quadratic implementation of reverse uh, that just uses um, uh, append at the end, so, so you could take the first element of your list and just append it to the end of the reversed um, rest of the list. Right? But that's actually quadratic because you have to reverse the rest of the list and then do an append, and the append takes another end step. So that's a quadratic algorithm. Um, uh, th there's of course a much more efficient way of doing that, but the types at that point get in the way. Um, and it turns out that we need to, uh, essentially prove that N plus zero equals N, uh, in order for that to work. Um, and, and we, we could, there's, we can walk through that example, um, uh, which I'm not going to do here. It's, it's a little bit technical. Um, but that proof 
uh, requires induction on the value of n to prove that n plus zero equals n. And that induction ends up taking the form of a recursive function in Haskell. And so in our attempt to write a linear version um, of reverse, now we end up still with a quadratic version because at every step we have to do one of these inductions, which is the same as recursion. So that's not a break. Um, and, and so part of the, the work is how do we, one of the real challenges of dependent types in Haskell really is how do we keep Haskell to be a partial language but have dependent types without these slowdowns? Um, and so one, uh, one possible answer to that problem is to have a, uh, a termination checker or totality checker in Haskell, but use it only in the optimizer. So if we know, if we can verify that a certain function is total, in other words, that it never fails at a pattern match and it always terminates, then, and if that function can only return a, um, a type, or if that function returns a type that has only one constructor, um, so unit is, is, a, is an obvious type that has only one constructor, but equality types also only have one constructor. There's only one way to build equality. The two types have to be equal. Um, and so if you have a function that's total and returns a value, uh, or returns a type that only has one constructor with no arguments, we can optimize that away. There's no point in running that function. Um, and, and so that will be, that's sort of how totality is going to find its way into Haskell is it's really going to be as an optimization, um, instead of a requirement the way it is in a language like that. And, and now that I've said all that, I really, I didn't really address your question of, of total versus type safe. So the other aspect of this is in Agda, if um, you, can, you can look at the type of a function and you know that, that you, can, you can view that type essentially as, as a proof of a property. So this is also called the Curry-Howard isomorphism. Um, and so, for example, you could, if you write a type in Agda that says that for all n and m, n plus m equals m plus n, then you really have a proof of commutativity of addition. In Haskell, if you write a function of that type, well, maybe it's a proof, maybe it's not a proof. Maybe your proof uses infinite recursion somewhere, or maybe you've left out a case. Um, and so that function in Haskell is not a proof. Um, that said, when you actually, uh, if you use um, these dependent type features, and if you get an expression that has a certain type in Haskell, you still know that it really does have that type. Um, perhaps there's a the computation diverges somewhere. Um, and, but once you, have an, once you have a value that has a given type, that value you know surely does have that type. And so in that way, we, while, we, while we can't write proofs in Haskell, we still have kept type safety. Um, and folks from a more dependent type background tend to, um, tend to have a harder time sort of separating out these two things of, is your language total, is it consistent as a logic, or is it just type safe? Um, and, ha and dependent types in Haskell will be certainly type safe, but won't really be consistent when viewed as a logic in the way that Agda would be with it, with the n plus n equals n plus n again. What's it like working on the type system for GHC? You know, I've I've seen these track tickets where a seemingly trivial change results in a years long discussion about possible side effects of this change. I mean, it seems like a high pressure sort of very delicate environment where you have to do a lot of thinking before making a change. Can you describe what it's like? Oh, it's great fun. That's that's. I mean, so. Uh, yes, that, 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 that's very true. Um, I mean, this, this whole safe coercions uh, line of, of work really comes from generalized new type deriving. And the fact that um, it see, probably seemed fairly innocent at the time. Oh, if we have new types, we could just lift the new types into classes, um, the class instances. Um, but it turns out that that was wrong and then leads to this the, a very long line of research with, I think there's three papers that were published on, on, on that problem. Um, and so, you know, how, what is it like on a daily basis? Well, it means that every time we tinker with GHC's core language, um, we do have to be very, very careful and, and then work out a full proof of type safety before we know that this is a good idea. Um, 
And in fact, sometimes we get it wrong. So um, there were several papers that talked about um, type families and the type safety of type families. And it turned out that there was a very subtle error in the proof. And this, this error was propagated among several papers. And it was in the work that I was doing on the closed type families paper that we discovered, wait, type families have been broken this whole time. And um, uh, we found it just by looking at the theory. And there was no known case of a program that went wrong. And then by finding an error in the theory, um, uh, I thought that there wouldn't be a possible way of writing a program. But then uh, uh, someone, uh, Takano Akio, if I recall correctly, found a, a, a program that actually could, you could cause a seg fault because of this problem in the theory. And so um, as someone who my, my, my natural leaning is much more toward theory than, than practice, this is what's so fun about Haskell is that the theory matters in practice. Um, and, and so here, by, by, there was a mistake in a proof. And because of this mistake in a proof, we were able to find a, a Haskell program that seg-faulted um, and that we would not have found without looking at the theory. Okay, a follow-up question then. <clears throat> Is any of the fancy uh, type system extension used in GHC itself? And if the answer is no, uh, which ones could be used and for which motivation? Uh, I, I mean, there's surely uh, opportunities for that in the GHC code base. Uh, so I think there's a lot of opportunity to use more of these extensions within GHC. Um, and uh, I would love to have the, the, the time to start integrating these. So, so one, one area in particular... Um, tying sort of the, the various threads of this conversation together uh, is with safe coercions. So um, roles within GHC are very fiddly and very easy to get wrong. Um, and so anytime I've done any work on, on roles, uh, I, I always end up creating bugs. And so uh, luckily the way that GHC is structured, it's not terribly hard to find these bugs and, and to correct them, but sometimes they, they go unnoticed, right? Um, and so what I've really wanted to do is to use GADTs to, um, to mark certain data types as, uh, as having certain roles. And so that way, as I'm writing GHC, I wouldn't have these problems. Um, the, the, the sort of the rule as a GHC developer is that we can only use extensions that were available to full releases previously. Um, but at this point, that includes basically all of these fancy type features except for type and type. Um, so that's, that's still no, no good, but we could even use closed type families within GHC. And uh, why haven't we done this? I think it's just been a, been, been a lack of time um, to do it. I, I think this would be a good idea, and I think it would improve the code base. Perhaps there'd be op opportunities for some optimizations, too. Yes. Um, so you, you've been a high school teacher before, uh, before coming back to uh, the academia. But... First, before talking about teaching Haskell and all that, uh, I, I would like to know how you taught uh, Haskell yourself. So how did you end up uh, learning about Haskell and learning it as well? Um, so I, I think in, in some ways I've always been programming in Haskell, but I haven't known that. Um, so um, I... I grew up programming. My, well, my first, my first first language was BASIC, and then I went through Pascal and C, C++, Java, all these very imperative languages. Um, and then I learned functional programming in college um, through Lisp, actually, an untyped language, um, and found that that was great fun. And then I learned ML, and then I, I you know, that's really where, where it was at. And, and somehow, uh, I must have learned about purity somewhere along the way, and then realized that that was the right way to do things. And um, just the language didn't enforce it, but, but I did, I, I only wanted to write things in this, in this pure style. Um, I didn't come to Haskell actually until 2011 when I started my doctorate. Uh, so, uh, when I showed up at, uh, at UPenn, um, I enrolled in Stephanie's Haskell course, Stephanie Robert's Haskell course. And I guess in the first couple of days, we had a couple of conversations uh, my experience with functional programming was a lot deeper than most of the other people in that class. So she invited me to leave the class and instead work with her on an independent study. And she just showed me the real world Haskell book and I read it. And, and that's, and that's where, where it started. And then by the end of that year, I, I was already working with singletons. Um, and 
how did that happen? I, I, I don't really know, but, but the, between the sort of functional nature, the, the way that Haskell enforces purity that just agreed with, um, with my own views on the world. And, uh, when I was teaching high school, I taught Java and what I always wanted to do was teach Java's type inference mechanism and teach Java's generic mechanism to, to talk about parametric polymorphism, even though I didn't even know those words at the time. So, so somehow it, it just agrees with the way I think. I, I can't explain why, but that's really how it, how it just, as soon as I discovered the language, like, this is, this is the right one for me. And what, what, what are the, uh, the difficulties and the, and the surprising, uh, I, I mean, uh, the nicely surprising aspects of teaching programming to kids? Um, well, my, most of my teaching experience is really in, in Java more, more than in Haskell. Um, I mean, what, what I enjoy most about, about teaching programming is I find programming is just great fun. And, and so if nothing else, I'm teaching, uh, teaching people a fun hobby that they can do the rest of their lives. I mean, I, I, one, I realized somewhere along the way, I, I'll never be bored again, right? Because if, if, I have, if, if there's nothing else to do, I could just program and that's, it's just great. Fun. Um, and so it, bringing, bring that to, you know, new students every semester is, has always been a lot of fun. I love watching the process of a student not understanding anything about how programming works to at least having a small inkling. And, and probably the, the best part of that always is, and this happens with just about every student, there's a moment when they realize how hard it is to get a working program. And yet we, we all use software all the time. And then they look at, at some large piece of software, you know, a web browser or Microsoft Word or a game and realize how hard that must have been to build and sort of how indebted we all are to all of these programmers around the world who build the software for us. Um, and, and that's uh, the, sort of every time that happens, it just gives me a thrill when students really see the magnitude of the problem that they're starting to, to tackle. Uh, I have a question slash comment that's a little bit off the topic, but um, I had to ask it because your, your dissertation is, is actually very interesting. If you look at, you have it up on GitHub, um, you've put it in the public domain or creative commons. Um, but I've seen something there that, that I haven't seen before. There, there's a lot of people forking it, uh, as well as a, a large number of people starring it, which, which I don't normally see on, on something like a, a thesis or dissertation. So, and you went further than that and included the code to generate it. And the dissertation itself is actually quite readable and formatted like a, a, a very, um, sort of instructive book uh what what inspired you to do that what was the process like um yeah th thanks for that question um and, and i appreciate the compliments in there um so the reason i did that is entirely due to brent yorgi um who is the mastermind behind diagrams um, among other projects um and he he was a few years ahead of me in the phd program at penn and and he did his thesis out in the open on, on github and i thought gee why not And so that was really, I didn't think much more about it than, than that. Um, something that, you know, maybe a listener who's thinking about a PhD program may not realize your thesis is a lower stakes adventure than a lot of other things that you do. Because so when writing a paper for publication, there's a little bit of an adversarial aspect to that because there's a review process and you want to present only the best possible things to reviewers. So a thesis also, there's a reviewal, but by the time you get to that stage of a thesis, if your, if your committee doesn't like what you're doing, you hopefully know by then. Um, and, and so there's not really this adversarial aspect to it. So putting it out in the open, there's no real drawback to that. Um, and then the fact that others have found it and started and forked it, I mean, I find flattering and very surprising. I don't really know what to make of it. I mean, uh, when I get comments from From the, you know, there's people I've, I have had no interaction with who then tell me about a typo on page 185 of my thesis. It's, it's, I mean, it's great that I fixed the typo, but it's, 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 a, it's a little, I don't quite know what to make of that sometimes. Um, uh, but other than that, clearly there's, there's some interest in this work out there. Um, but, but I definitely, I, I enjoyed doing that. There was not a ton of collaboration other than typo fixes really that came in 
uh, uh, during that process. So, uh, if if someone wants to get to uh, get to know the theory behind the the kind of work that you've been doing, uh, what kind of keywords for the topics should they be looking at? And maybe if you have any resources uh, to uh, Uh, to suggest for, for them to take a look at, to get started into this dependent typing world and maybe type theory as a whole? Uh, sure. So um, the, the first port of call, I think, has to be Benjamin Pierce's Types and Programming Languages. Uh, that's, uh, that's the book that, that I read to teach myself about all of this stuff. Um, Uh, and it's, 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 it's a great book. It doesn't really touch on dependent types, but it gives you the framework that you need to, to get in that direction. Um, to get to dependent types themselves, I don't have a great answer to that question, unfortunately. Um, I am hoping to read uh, Edwin Brady's book this summer on um, development in Idris. I, I can't recall the full title of, of the book, um, but... I'm hoping that that introduces a lot of these uh, topics in a nice way. Uh, and I'm looking forward to learning more about Idris in the process. Um, I, uh, as part of my course, I wrote, I've, I wrote this past semester, I wrote some lecture notes, um, which now is as good a time as any to publicize. I've been meaning to sort of tighten them up and, and publicize them. Um, and, and so they're available through my course webpage, which, which I can, uh, which you can find from my, my personal academic webpage. Um, and so that covers how to do dependent types in Haskell. Uh, it's, I will admit this is, there's, there's, I, I think a, a need here for more, um, more introductory material into dependent types. And perhaps that need is met in, in Edwin's book. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that it is the, the reviews I've seen online have been very good, but I have not yet gotten a chance to look through it. Is there anything you wanted to talk about or discuss that, that we haven't brought up? Um, one, one aspect, I guess I'll, I, I can plug this one, one aspect of my job now that I'm, I'm excited about is that Bryn Mawr college is an all women's college. Um, and so, uh, one thing that, um, I know Haskell and, and the, the, the broader ICFP community actually has, has really struggled with is trying to bring more women in. And so, um, I am, I'm trying to do this. I, I will have, Uh, three women working with me as research students this fall. I'm hoping to get them all contributing to GHC. Um, and, and we'll see where that will go. And I will also hopefully have um, several women working with me next summer and, and more contributions from, from them. And then maybe we can, maybe this can be a beachhead to, to something larger. Uh, we'll see where it all goes. My own interest actually in dependent types comes not from all the type theory, it, it comes from teaching. Um, when I first encountered dependent types, this is still when I was teaching high school, and uh, I, I read about dependent types, I just, like, why aren't I teaching this to, to my 14-year-old students? This is, this is exactly what we need. And then I learned more about dependent types and learned why we don't do that. Um, uh, but the idea that you know, I spend, as a teacher, so much time correcting fairly basic mistakes in, in my students and with better static analysis and better and, and dependent types, you can imagine that when a student writes a for loop that the termination condition is wrong, um, you just get a nice error message that appears telling you that. Um, and, and we are over a decade, I would say, from being able to do that in practice, probably two decades at the rate that, that all of this develops. But that's, that's really where I, I want this to go. Um, you know, uh, right now it's, it's all about getting dependent types into Haskell, but, um, maybe the next stop is dependent types in Java. You know, wh why not? Um, let's, let's, I, 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 to me, dependent types are the answer to software engineering. Um, there's a reason that, that, um, I'm enthusiastic about this. I really believe that. And, um, I believe that through dependent types, we can, we can make all software more reliable. And of course, this can't happen today. Dependent types are way too hard, um, way too hard to learn because there's not the resources and, and frankly, way too hard to use even in languages with all of these nice tool support and all of, all of these nice features. Um, uh, but 
th- th- that's why there's a future. That's why we keep working towards it. We're going to keep building all of this and trying to make it more accessible and trying to make it more usable so that perhaps in decades we can have these dependent types be pervasive and have fewer bugs in, in software that, that we see every day. Thank you, Richard, for joining us. It's been a pleasure talking with you. It's been a real pleasure being here. Thanks. You've been listening to The Haskell Cast, episode 14, recorded on June 1st, 2017. For notes and links from the show, visit www.haskellcast.com. <laughs>